Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this morning's worship service here at Grace Bible Fellowship, and we're thankful for each one that has been able to come out and to join us this morning. Thank you for those songs, Philip and Willie, and thinking of the last song you sang, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Such an encouragement that is, as we consider that, that it's not by our own strength, not by our own doing, not by our own will, but through Christ who dwells in us, that we live this Christian life, this, we walk this Christian walk. And it is a walk that is often very difficult. It is a walk that is often filled with much hurdles, many hills, many valleys. We live in a sin-cursed world, and that is the reality of it. Though we are citizens of heaven, we are exiles on this earth. We're toiling under the weight of sin, sickness, suffering. Our bodies are mortal, and they are yet to be exchanged for the immortal bodies that we are promised as Christians when our time on this earth is done. We are children of God, therefore, like Jesus Christ our Lord, We too will face hatred, persecution by many people and systems of this world, for it hated Him before us. We will face many situations and conditions that will cause much loss and deep, heart-wrenching grief. These may come in many different forms, and they're not limited, but it could come in the form of church struggles, hurts, family hardships, broken marriages, rebellious children, loss of employment, uncertainty in this world, slander, persecutions, depression, anxiety, sickness, and ultimately even death. The psalmists were no stranger to deep, heavy, uh, indwelling emotion. Psalm 6 says in verse 6, I am weary with mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. Psalm 31 verse 9, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Psalm 119, verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Grief and sorrow is a reality that many people live with, and even in the young life of our church, we've seen much of that already in our midst, as many here have faced situations that we could never possibly dream of or think of how we would react, how to deal with it. But part of living in this sin-cursed world is the reality that there is sin, suffering, grief, sickness, death. And in my introduction, I have a bit of a longer introduction and then into my other points as you'll see on your outline. But in my introduction, I want to 
look at and establish the reality and the purpose of trials and grief. It is a reality that we must face, not something that we brush over, not something that we ignore or avoid. It is something that we face on an ongoing basis in many people in different situations. And so I want to focus on that. And for that part, we will go into First Peter chapter 1. So First Peter chapter 1. I borrowed some of my notes from my earlier sermons in First Peter as we looked at this. But the book of First Peter is such a stark reminder of the reality of hardship and affliction in our lives. And there's so much hope. So much that the Apostle Peter gives us to look towards. So First Peter chapter 1, and we started, we look at the reality of trials and grief. So when introducing this epistle, the Apostle Peter addresses the persecuted church. They are dispersed abroad. They were discouraged and probably confused at the persecution they were facing because of their faith. This caused much suffering and grief. And Peter opens his epistle by encouraging them to remain strong. And he reminds them to look to Christ, the source of their salvation and their inheritance in Him, and the hope of his return to take the church with him to glory. Peter begins with a stark reminder of the gospel and the hope that the believer has in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Peter then goes on in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The church is to rejoice in the hope of the gospel, the promised inheritance of eternal salvation. And even though they are now for a little while faced with various trials, Peter contrasts their eternal hope with the temporal nature of suffering that they now face, causing his readers to look beyond the trials of here and now, look through them, look past the trials of here and now, and set their view on the glories of their eternal inheritance. Peter understands that suffering and grief will be normal for the obedient Christian because, as he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Christ first suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in suffering. Persecution will be a result of following Christ, For the world hated him and therefore will hate us, as John reminds us in chapter 15. And it is to this end that the scripture speaks much of the eternal glory of God and our inheritance with Christ as a contrast to our temporary affliction, suffering, and grief. Peter reiterates this point of Christ's suffering setting an example for us when he also says in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So why would we not expect to suffer for good when Christ, who is the righteous, suffered and gave himself for us, the unrighteous? When Jesus calls us to suffer, he understands how we feel and what we are going through. He also suffered, and he is our example in doing so. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And Peter further encourages his readers with this exhortation. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we see suffering, affliction, and grief as a very common theme in the New Testament Scriptures. Christ suffered, leaving us an example, and by sharing in His suffering, we also shall become partakers of His glory. As we read earlier, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Daniel Doriani in his commentary on 1 Peter notes that Peter describes our trials in five ways in verses 6 and 7. First, when compared to eternity, they are brief in duration. Though now for a little while, Peter writes. Second, they are varied in form. You have been grieved by various trials. Third, they have a kind of necessity. He, he mentions if necessary. Fourth, Suffering proves that our faith is real, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And fifth, suffering will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because suffering has a limit and a purpose, we can rejoice in it. We do have to be honest and admit Joy is probably not the first response we think of when we consider facing suffering. Yet we see it is a consistent New Testament theme. In fact, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, starting in verse 10, Jesus is in his Sermon on the Mount. We're in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad in persecution, 
for great is your reward in heaven. All throughout Scripture, in hardships, in times of trial, suffering, and persecutions, and griefs, the Scriptures point us to look beyond the here and now and to focus our sight. If we are Christians, if we are believers, to focus our eyes on the eternal, to look to Christ, to look to the salvation that He has purchased on our behalf. And it is the same that Peter is doing in his epistle, and Matthew did in his gospel. They point to our eternal hope in glory as a means to endure our temporary affliction. Whenever we may suffer as Christians, we are to remember that we are safe in God's grace. For He chose us before the world's creation. He was faithful to grant us new birth, which results in this living hope and a future inheritance as we saw in verses 3-5 to of 1 Peter. This is the grace of God, and in this we rejoice, no matter what our current circumstances may be. And so the reality is, is we will face much suffering, trials, and persecution. And much of these things and situations that we live through and that we endure will cause much deep grief. But there is a purpose behind this. There is a purpose that God intended. And the purpose of our trials, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, is that we are to rejoice in our various kinds of trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trials in our lives test our faith. They prove the genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold, which perishes. Gold has always been considered a very precious commodity containing of great value. But our faith is considered more precious even than gold. Because gold too, like all material things, will perish. As much value as we place on things of this world, the gold and the jewels of this world, they too will perish one day. And so our faith has eternal implication. It does not fade or diminish It is placed in the eternal promises of God that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. But like gold, our faith is tested by fire. Literal fire tests gold and other precious metals. Metaphorical fire, trials, persecutions, sufferings, grief, tests our faith. The psalmist writes in chapter 66 verse 10, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us like silver. Proverbs 17.3 The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests hearts. James chapter 1 verse 2 to 4 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So we see in James chapter 1, suffering promotes endurance and perfection of character. And the Apostle Paul also reiterates this in Romans chapter 5 verses 3 to 4, where we see that we are to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance 
And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There is great value in suffering for the Christian. Too often we seek to avoid all hardship, and when we find ourselves in the midst of them, we seek to be freed from whatever may have befallen us. Rather, we should consider looking to our eternal promises as a means to endure through trials while entrusting our souls to our faithful Creator. But we can also find great encouragement and hope in the fact that we do not suffer alone. For Christ also suffered and provided an example for us. Our faith is valuable. Our faith is valuable to God. It is it is something that God wants to refine in us. And just as gold is refined in the fire that burns away its impurities, likewise, suffering, afflictions, griefs, refines our faith. And our faith is far more precious than gold in the sight of the Lord. Our trials are temporary and ultimately they have a greater purpose. This does not diminish our grief during these times. It simply reminds us that we have an eternal hope to look forward to amidst our temporary afflictions and a means by which we can overcome our griefs. Trials, suffering, persecutions, loss, these things can all cause much grief in our lives as Christians. We know that these things will come. We live in a sin-cursed world. No matter how we look at it, that is the reality. Life has never been promised to be easy. Life has never been promised to be something that once we are saved will be smooth sailing. In fact, we see the opposite in Scripture. That often as believers, it becomes more difficult as we stand for truth in a fallen world, as we oppose the systems of this world. But we too deal with the reality of what sin has brought into this world, and that is death. We face death all the time in the world around us. But God has not left us without hope. God has not told us to fall into these traps and snares that grief so often brings. God has provided a way, first and foremost, through Jesus Christ, His Son, and through His Word that we as a church, as the body of Christ, that we can find a hope and comfort. And so this morning, I want to focus specifically sorry, on the matter of grief. And look at the comfort God's Word offers for those who are grieving. And so if you look at your outline, point number one, I have understanding grief. And I have a few sub-points under each of the two main points as we try to work through this subject a little bit. And it is a heavy subject. It is a hard subject but it is a reality that we face. And so my prayer is is that God will use 
some of the labors in His Word to encourage each one of us. And so understanding grief, grief defined. I think it is a word that most of us are familiar with and may sometimes not even be able to put into words exactly what it may mean, but it is something that we have felt. It is something that we have experienced to a certain degree or another. The Oxford Dictionary defines it as a deep sorrow. Not a fleeting one, not a, a, a light conflict, but a deep sorrow. In the New Testament, the Greek root word translated as grief means as well to sorrow, to grieve, to afflict with sorrow, to be sad and to be sorrowful. We get a bit of an idea. We know that grief is a deep and powerful emotion. It is caused by the loss of someone or something we held dear. Grief is part of loving and living. When you love someone or something dearly, the opposite of that is grief that we experience. Loss is bound to come in this fallen world. And grief will come with that. It is not an emotion to be avoided, but one to acknowledge and to walk through. Grief is an emotional response humans feel after loss or when facing extreme hardship or disruption in life. Situations and circumstances that have resulted in great loss or hold the potential of changing what we have become accustomed to in a drastic way, and it's usually seen from a temporal perspective or from in a negative way from a temporal perspective. The Apostle Paul experiences grief over the lost state of his kinsmen. In Romans chapter 9, verses 2 to 3, Romans 9, 2 to 3, Paul writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He is not talking again of a light burden. He's not talking about something that passes through his mind fleetingly. He has great sorrow. Un- ceasing anguish in his heart. It is deep. It is rooted inside of the person. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is suffering from a great sorrow, unceasing anguish because his Jewish kinsmen were unsaved. To the point where, if possible, he would wish himself accursed so that his fellow Jews might be saved. But we know that only Jesus is a sufficient substitute. So Paul grieves the state of lost Israel. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is saying his farewell to the Ephesian elders. And in verse 23, he says that imprisonment and affliction await him. 
And this caused, as we see in Acts 20, verse 37 to 38, this caused much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. They loved Paul, and knowing that they would never see him again caused much weeping and sorrow. We see Paul grieving over the lost state of Israel. We see Paul grieving and people grieving for not knowing that they will never see him again. But one of the most popular passages of grieving found in the New Testament, perhaps, speaks of our Lord himself when the Apostle John wrote the words, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, fully God, and yet as a man, Jesus wept. Luke, sorry, John chapter 11, we find the story of Lazarus. I'll dig into this one a little bit as we get a picture and understanding the grief that Jesus felt. Lazarus had been in his tomb for four days by the time Jesus arrives, and Martha goes out to meet him. Lord, she says, chapter 11, verse 21 to 22. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha's faith is simple. Lazarus is dead, but she still believes that Jesus can help. Jesus responds, your brother will rise again in verse 23. And like many in her day, Martha believed in the end time resurrection of God's people. Her response is, I know that he will rise again. This is in verse 24. She says, in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha's thinking about the last day. Lazarus will rise again, and I know that. There will be an end time resurrection. But you can almost hear her think. But what about now, Jesus? My brother is laying dead in the grave. You consider her plea, Lord, if you had been here, why won't you help me now? But in this moment, Martha stands where many Christians stand when faced with suffering. We have ultimate promises. One day Jesus will return and make all things right. We know that. But what about now? Our pain is real. And it is urgent. It refuses to be comforted by a faraway hope looking into the future. Especially in these moments. Jesus responds to her in verses 25 to 26. 
He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Is Jesus talking about Lazarus? Perhaps. Lazarus was physically dead, but he trusted in Jesus. But Jesus is not talking to Lazarus. Not yet. Not at this point in the story. He's talking to Martha, who is mourning Lazarus' death. Lazarus' death. Martha longs to have Lazarus back, but Jesus looks at her in the eyes and says, I am the resurrection and the life. And as you stand here in your desperate grief, your greatest need is not to have your brother back again. It's to have me, Jesus. He he here claims not that he is offering good guidelines for life. He's not pointing towards living your life well, but that he himself is life. He is life in the face of suffering. And Jesus Christ is our life, even in the face of death. Martha responds again with her in faith. She says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In verse 27. And in verse 32, Mary, her sister Mary proclaims, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus is moved and troubled. He asks them where Lazarus is, where his body has been laid. And then we see one of the shortest verses in the Bible, as we mentioned earlier. In verse 35 of John chapter 11, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. How easily these tears could have been spared. If Jesus had only come when he was called, no one would be crying. They would be overjoyed at the healing of of Lazarus. The bystanders say in 37 verse, uh, sorry, verse 36 to 37, see how he loved him. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Genuine questions. Very real questions. And even though Jesus knew that within moments Lazarus would be alive again, there would be much joy. Consider this with me for a moment. In those moments leading up to Jesus calling Lazarus forth out of the tomb, while Lazarus' sisters are weeping the loss of their brother, while the bystanders, there's much mourning and questions, why Jesus, why did you not come earlier when we called you? Jesus knew that within moments there would be great rejoicing. Jesus knew that within a few moments, He would show His power over death itself. 
In calling Lazarus forth from the dead with a single word, Lazarus come forth and he would be drawn to life again and the rejoicing and the joy that would be felt would be immense. And yet, in that moment, knowing this, when Jesus was with the family, he was overcome with grief. And so grief does not disappear just because we know there's a better day coming. Grief does not go away for us just because we know there is a resurrection and an ultimate victory over death and that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Jesus knew Lazarus would be alive in a few moments and yet he was overcome with grief. He wept. And likewise, even for us as Christians, as we try to understand grief, we have to understand that. We know the promises of God. We know what His Word teaches us. And yet, there are times of grief, just like in the Scriptures, weeping and sorrow. But there are many different ways we grieve and people can grieve. That brings me to the second sub-point in understanding grief, where I've tried to contrast a little bit proper grief versus harmful grief. And for this section, I've leaned on a great little resource by Dr. James White. It's a book that's called Grieving, Your Path Back to Peace. And it is the fruit of many years of him serving as a chaplain in a hospital, as a counselor and pastor, dealing with many situations that have created and caused much grief. And he helps us to better understand the process of grief. So as we're trying to understand grieving, he notes several different stages but not everyone or every situation is nearly the same, and we must consider that. But there are some general truths that can help us to understand this process as you and I face grief in our own lives. And I've tried to take a few of these steps and summarize them, condense them for our benefit. But again, just to help us to understand this concept of grieving. One stage, and probably the first stage, is shock. Everyone goes through numbness and shock. It is in reality God's gracious way of helping us cope with those first few days, weeks, moments after the loss itself. Because of shock, our minds are not allowed to process fully what has happened. And I've said that before, it feels like at times when the reality of something that has occurred, that has created the grief, in those moments it just seems so unreal. The shock and reality of what has occurred hasn't sunk in. And we often pray, and we usually do as, as believers, we pray for God to grant us peace and comfort through our times of grief. But so often, when he answers those prayers, we feel guilty. We feel guilt for feeling peace and comfort. 
The times of shock are often how he answers these prayers. And this gives us moments where it seems that the weight of reality have been lifted off our shoulders. And so I would encourage us to not feel guilt in these moments, but to feel praise, to thank him for being gracious and answering those prayers and offering a moment of respite. Another stage is solitude, and he contrasts it with isolation. Because everyone feels a tremendous sense of emptiness and separation at any time of loss, and this is for good reason. But those who grieve properly experience solitude, while others experience isolation. So what is the difference? Solitude, and I quote Dr. White, Solitude is necessary at times during the grieving process. We need time to ourselves to think, to reflect, to mourn. This is fine and proper. But there is a difference between solitude and isolation. With solitude, you have periods of quiet interspersed with normal interaction with loved ones and friends. Isolation, on the other hand, speaks of a person pushing others away, making an active choice to sever relationships and refuse consolation and comfort. People who isolate themselves cut themselves off from positive, healthy input from outside of their world of hurt, and they do so to their own detriment. Cutting yourself off from family, fellow believers, and friends is the first step toward embarking on a downward spiral of grief rather than on an upward track. End quote. The next stage, anxiety. Most people who grieve experience this, of a degree or a form of anxiety, and it may come for many different reasons. We are always reminded of our own mortality when someone close to us dies. Christians should experience this less than non-believers for the simple reason that we should always be reminded of the death of our Lord. And believers have the promise of God that we can cast our cares or our anxieties or our stresses, if you will, upon Him, for He cares for us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. We have the privilege as Christians to cast our cares, our anxieties on Christ. Such is the precious promise for the Christian who is grieving. We know that the second guessing, we know that second guessing God will accomplish nothing. Though we can't often avoid these questions in our minds. And even if the grieving process is very difficult, believers who go through it come out with a firmer trust in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. The believer again has the promise of God that he holds the future in his hands and he has a purpose for each one's life. God holds the future of each one of us and he has a purpose for each one of us. And he promises he will never leave nor forsake us. 
The strong light of his love can pierce the blackest darkness. This is a quote from Dr. White's book. The strong light of God's love can pierce the blackest darkness we see ahead of us. And his hand can guide us through the difficulties of life, even death itself. Anger. Anger is another stage that many will experience. A deep loss and grief will cause them to look to, and anger is arguably the strongest human emotion. It is certainly, Dr. White notes, the most dangerous in the grieving process. It is often expressed towards others, sometimes with reason, sometimes without. And anger must be dealt with. It cannot be ignored. Anger is a very strong emotion, and if left to itself, it will trap us in destructive attitudes and viewpoints. The Christian has a means of dealing with anger, for the opposite of anger is love. And the resources of love available to the person redeemed in Christ are inexhaustible. Grief will cause us to be inward focused, to look to ourselves, to focus in upon ourselves. And this does often lead to lapses of patience and gentleness with those around us. Sadness. Sadness is a stage in times of loss that everyone experiences. But sadness also can be chronic. In the sense that feeling deep down in the chest, in the sense of that feeling deep down in the chest that won't go away, sadness saps our strength. It saps our joy. It makes solemn moods deeper and pulls happy times down. Over time, though, if you are facing your sadness and dealing with those issues that must be handled from a biblical perspective, these periods of sadness, that dull ache in your chest, will diminish in intensity and duration. Yes, you may well shed a tear and feel that old sadness many years down the road, but there is a hope at the end of the tunnel. And grieving is different for everyone. There is no set timeline. A week, two weeks, a month, a year, five years, ten years. This Bible gives us no such promises, no such timelines. And so we work through these things patiently, ever looking to the Word of God. Because ultimately, the stage that we are trying to reach in our grieving is hope. As Christians, the ultimate stage that we try to reach through our grieving is hope. And this is the key to the grieving process. It is what makes the difference, and again quoting Dr. White, it is what makes the difference between being in the downward spiral headed to despair and the upward track leading to acceptance of one's loss and ability to once again love and rejoice and feel with all of one's heart. Hope will determine which direction a person will travel and how fully a person will experience the healing power of the grieving process. 
It is the power that keeps on going, the fuel that runs the engine of the soul, the medicine that brings healing to a wounded heart. It gives strength to face an uncertain future, for it looks not to its own resources, but to Christ. Hope and faith are the works of Christ, are the works of the Spirit in the person's heart, and God will be faithful to those who are His. And while the flame of hope may grow dim and seem to have gone out, it will flare up yet again in the hearts of those who have, be, have by grace known Christ. This is the key. Hope in Christ. Trusting Christ. And having looked at that, trying to define faith, looking at some of the stages of grief that many maybe in this room have experienced and are experiencing. I hope that that has helped us to understand the first point, to understand grief, to get a little bit of an understanding. There are no certain answers in how each one will feel, but the hope that we have is sure. And therefore, we can overcome grief. And point number two in the outline is exactly that. And borrowed from the title, Overcoming Grief. We have identified our hope in Christ as the key to overcoming grief, so let's dig into that and see what it looks like for the believer and the means by which we may achieve this. And if you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 1. This is a great passage, very comforting passage. And in and of itself is a sermon, but I only want to pull two points out of it as we look at the next section here of our sermon, starting in verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And in those two verses, two points I want to pull out. One is we find comfort through Christ. And the second one, as you see in the outline, is comfort through the church. Paul wrote in this passage, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So we find comfort in Christ because as we saw earlier in John 11.35, Jesus understands our griefs, for He also wept. And so we find comfort in Him by believing in Him. John 14.1 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. 
Don't let your hearts be troubled by the cares of this world and by the sufferings and afflictions of this world. Believe in God. Believe also in Christ. We find comfort in Christ by obeying Him. John chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. John writes, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. We find comfort in Christ by obeying Him. And in doing so, we are abiding in His love. And His joy indwells us and may be in us. And our joy may be full. Not half full. Not almost full. Not empty. But that our joy may be full. Obedience to Christ produces joy. We find comfort through prayer and meditation. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, verse 8, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Through prayer, the God of peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Meditating on these things that are pure and honorable and just and lovely. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We have comfort in Christ by believing in Him, by obeying Him through prayer and meditation. The compassion of Christ goes beyond mere sympathy. Jesus does not just feel sorry for us in our weakness and pain. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Jesus does not just feel sorry for us in our pain, in our grief. But He takes the agony on Himself. In Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, for thus, sorry, that was 52. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We see in this prophecy that grief, suffering, and sickness are all rolled up together with sin and guilt, our iniquities, and they are loaded onto the Messiah's back. And when Jesus comes, He carries that load. He bears the weight of guilt and sin in our place. But He also bears the heartbreak of our suffering. He weeps with us. But He will also one day wipe every tear from our eyes. He truly is the ultimate source of our comfort during these times. And another means that God has then graciously granted to us by which we can experience comfort and overcome grief is the church. We find comfort through the church because the church is the body of Christ of which He is the head. Brothers and sisters, this is the role that each one of us can play and serve in in this matter. Paul said in the passage we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God comforts us. But he says, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Have you considered that, brothers and sisters? If the Lord has comforted you at some point in your life, it is so that you may comfort others. It is that you may be a comfort to those who are hurting and grieving around you. As Christians, we belong to the body of Christ, the church. And we find comfort through bearing one another's griefs. We are not called to carry these burdens alone. We are called and to bear one another's griefs. How do we do this? Romans 12.15, we do this by weeping with those who weep. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. That's the easy one. People are happy and joyful. It's easy to spend time with them. It's easy to be in their presence, right? But Paul says, weep with those who weep. We bear one another's griefs by sharing one another's suffering. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 24 to 26. The Apostle Paul writes regarding the church, but God has composed the body, the church, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice. We all belong to the same body, the body of Christ. We bear one another's burdens. We bear one another's griefs. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We suffer with those who suffer. It helps us to understand then why belonging to the body of Christ is such an integral part in overcoming grief. Being with those who are bearing these burdens with us. Those who will weep with us offers such comfort then. Because even the head of this body, Jesus himself, wept. We can have joy and peace even in the midst of suffering and grief. We have Christ. We have a Savior who died for us. But we have a Savior who rose again. Jesus Christ conquered death. And in that, He calls us to put our cares on Him, to put our griefs and lay them on Him. He bears our burdens. Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. He will give us rest. He is faithful. He is just. He will keep His promises. And because He died and rose again, He conquered death. And so we know, brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have trusted in Him for your salvation and you've looked for Him or looked to Him as the all-sufficient One who can give you this salvation, our grief is then temporary. It is only a part of this world. And it is something that God wants to use in our lives to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith. faith. Brothers and sisters, turn your face to Jesus Christ. He Himself is interceding for us. He is sitting ever bringing our deepest needs before the throne of God. Jesus Christ, God the Son, understands your heart, your mind, your soul. He knows the hurt. He knows the pain. He knows the questions. A thousand unanswered questions, and He knows all that. And Jesus Himself is sitting at the throne of God, interceding for each one of us to the Father. And I can guarantee those prayers are uttered in a lot more perfection than the ones that we struggle with so many times. When I opened the sermon, I quoted a few psalms. 
Earlier I read the parts of these passages outlining grief, sorrow, and mourning. But now in closing, let's focus on the hope that these same psalms found in the Lord during these times. Turn with me, if you would, to the psalms, starting in Psalm chapter 6. Psalm chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Earlier we read, I am weary with my mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. Look at verse 8. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. And the Lord accepts my prayer. He does not leave us in that state. Turn further to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Earlier we read, starting in verse 9, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. This is again a deep, heavy grief. His eye is wasted from grief. And many here have experienced that, where your eyes just feel heavy and hurting, and your soul and your body are under the weight of this grief and experiencing it. Verse 10, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Jump to verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. Look at the faith of the psalmist. I trust in you, O Lord. Even in this time, his trust Verse 15, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. So even in this time of grief, the psalmist turns to the Lord and trusts. And he knows and he acknowledges that he is in the hand of the Lord. Verse 21, Blessed be the Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. Verse 23, Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Look to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And then one more in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, starting in verse 28. Earlier I read the first sentence there, My soul melts away for sorrow. 
My soul melts away for sorrow. The Psalms are filled with poetic language and sometimes it just helps us really to understand and we can say, Amen. This is exactly how we can feel. My soul melts away for sorrow. But he continues, Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. The psalmist turns to the word of God and trusts in the sufficiency and the truth of the word and looks to obey the word and to follow the word of God and overcome grief in such a manner. Faith in the Lord. Trusting in Him, knowing that our lives are in His hands. And He is gracious and good. God Himself sent His Son to die for our sins. Surely, He loves us. Jesus Christ has taken our griefs and our sorrows. Surely, He loves us. A sermon like this does not provide all the answers. I understand that. So many situations that we face in our lives are different from each other. But my prayer in preparing this was that the Lord might encourage each one of us as we toil on this earth that He might encourage us to look to Him, to understand these things that we deal with, to try to understand these stages, seeing how there can be a way we do not hide from grief, but there can be a way that can help us. But there's also ways of grieving that can hurt us. And ultimately, overcoming grief. I don't know when. Or how long? But always looking to Christ. Finding our comfort in Christ, our Savior. And finding our comfort in belonging to the body of Christ, the church. May we ever be aware of those around us who are suffering, who are grieving. Upholding them, praying for them, and serving them in something that our community is quite well known for, and we praise God for that. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you again for your abundant mercy. Lord, we know that you have loved us and that you've died for us. You took the penalty for our sin, Lord. You became sin and so that we might become the righteousness of God. And Lord, in that you have wrapped up our grief, our sorrows, our afflictions, our sufferings. And you've taken them upon yourself as well. And Lord, we pray 
that you would help us to cast our cares on you each and every day, that you would help us to find our rest in you each and every day. Help us, Lord, to find those moments of comfort and to rejoice in them. Help us, Lord, to recognize the guilt and place that on you as well, that you might give us peace. We do not feel guilty for grieving those that we have loved and that have gone on. But Lord, be gracious to us and comfort us. In the name of Jesus, amen.